Hi there, this is Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman. Thanks for joining me. That's a question that many of us probably have never asked ourselves. But Laurie Rubin, a stellar American mezzo-soprano who's been blind from birth, has given this question a great deal of thought. A question gives me pause as I Do You Dream in Colour? It's the title of an iridescent song sequence that the singer created in collaboration with the composer Bruce Adolph, a snippet of which we heard just now. And it's also the title of Laurie's memoir, recently published by Seven Stories Press. On tonight's show, I'm excited to be joined by Laurie, who's visiting the Bay Area from her home base in New York. She stopped in to talk about her voice, her life, and what it's like to sing without sight in a culture that's extremely visually oriented. Hello, Laurie. Thanks for coming in. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, do you dream in colour, Laurie? Well, you know, that's an interesting question, a sort of twofold question. And the way I answer it is that I don't physically dream in color because I dream what I experience. I dream, for example, that I might be sitting here at this radio station. It's sort of dimly lit. Uh, it's soundproof. Um, I might very vividly dream that because I've experienced something like that. Um, if there's something that I haven't experienced that I dream, it might be flying or one of those other fantastical things that we do. But when I talk about dreaming in color, what I wanted people to get from that is this really wonderful paradox of uh, something that we can do um, that is sort of what you wouldn't guess of a person. For example, you know, recently we, there was an Olympian uh, who was a runner who had no legs, and yet he could run, and he was an Olympian, and it mm-hmm. was really. And this wasn't even in the Paralympics; this was in the regular Olympics. Right. And um, for me, color is such a huge part of my life. Um, I make jewelry. I love putting on makeup. I I just I think of music as having so much color. I love food, so of course, food has so many tastes and colors, and just everyday nature and and reading. I read and I also write a lot, so that's really important to me in color. And I think the idea of being able to dream in color for a blind person is inspiring for sighted people because there are so many things that the uh, sighted people put limitations on themselves for. Hmm. And and this is just an example of something where it can show them that, you know, they're not as limited as they might think and that their dreams are things that you can achieve with color um, and with richness and with the, the with many abilities despite what you might what you might suspect. Yeah, the, it's really interesting you bring this up, especially as it relates to your memoir. There's that lovely scene, which I'd love you to describe, um, mm. about the little girl who first poses this question to you. Can you tell us what happened to you that made you start thinking about this question in that way? Yeah, well, actually, what happened was that this has been sort of a, a con- conglomeration of many different experiences. But I've had little kids come up to me after concerts um, and they've said, you know, Laurie, um, do you... 
tell me what color is to you or, you know, do you experience color? And I say, well, I don't know, actually. Why don't you tell me what color is to you? And they get very excited because it's very interactive and then they get to feel like they're input about sight and color and the visual world is is sort of implanted into my head so they get very excited and then they'll tell me what certain colors mean to them and the funniest thing is that they'll often use something that doesn't necessarily have a context for me but but which is very important for them for example hair and in the song in the piece um when she gets to yellow, she says, yellow, what's yellow? Oh, yellow's the color of my hair, of course. And you know mm-hmm. what my hair looks like, even though I don't really know what her hair looks like. But, you know, but it's still, it still means a lot to her, and then, and, and then it means a lot to me. And so it's a really, really ex- important experience to have other people, young and old, explain colors to me because I've learned so much about it just from their perspectives. Tell us a little bit specifically about this song sequence that you wrote. It's arranged in different, the different verses relate to different colors. You just described the yellow Mm -hmm. verse. Tell us a bit more about the different colors and what they represent in the song. Well, as I mentioned, green to the little girl, it represents spring and leaves. And and it's actually what it really represents for me too. And uh, white and marshmallows and snow. In my book, I talk about I actually have little poems in my book that describe different colors and what Mm -hmm. they mean to me. So white is a fluffy blanket of snow and marshmallows and a clean slate. And brown is the color of something cooking in the oven like pumpkin bread or chocolate chip cookies and buckeyes, which I had such a really great experience with when I was in Ohio because it's the state nut. So, yeah, I mean, I've had some great experiences with colors and how they marry to textures and, and, and juxtapose with other senses. I was uh, reading a study recently which mentioned a little boy who saw notes, musical notes as particular colors. Do you do that? Um, oh, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, like and A was blue for him. Really? Oh, for me, G is blue. Like, And it's funny because I think of G major or G, um, the Mixolydian mode, which is the G all natural scale. So if you go up all the white notes on the G scale, the Mixolydian mode, um, that to me is blue. I don't know why. <laughs> so it's interesting that some people have such synesthesia, but that a lot of times it doesn't always match. But that just reminds me of how everybody has a different view of color. Um, and there was this time that I was I, w- I had bought this dress and I was very excited about this dress because the person, the sales girl had told me that it was blue, but that it graduated to a white. Like it, it went mm-hmm. from white to dark blue. And I just love that. Then I brought it home and, and um, I was explaining this, how, what I loved about this dress to Jenny. And she goes, that's not blue. That's purple. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I realized that color is different for everybody yeah. in some way. Um, so I think that's interesting that... Um, there's that little that little boy out there that that just thinks of colors and um, musical notes, and there's also a study, I think, a treatise in the classic period where um, a, a composer talked about how a flat was like death or something like that, and 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 also described a very synesthetic experience of music and color. Laurie's an acclaimed mezzo soprano who's been blind since birth, and she's joined me in the studio tonight. Laurie, Kenny Loggins, what is the story there for you? Well, it's, it starts when I was really a, a, a tiny little preschooler and he hiked to the way grasshopper. And my mother used to play Kenny all the time because she she had a crush on him. <laughs> which <laughs> didn't. Yeah, and she projected that onto her four-year-old daughter when she met him in the supermarket. And that started a very interesting chapter in our life because my mom started talking to Kenny about um, how her four-year-old blind daughter loved him. 
And that was exactly what he needed to hear to give us backstage passes to the Universal Amphitheater concert he was giving a couple months later. And I remember being so so sad that I didn't go to the market with her that day because I did love his music and I had all these questions for her about you know harmony and how does he sing with himself was one of my big questions. And um, and when you were four, yeah, I used to ask them because I, I knew that there were like five Kennys singing, you know. Uh-huh. And so it kind of inspired me to start um, taking. I would take two tape recorders, and I would record myself, uh-huh. and I would play myself back on the second recorder, and then overdub myself so there would sound like there were seven of me or ten of me wow. sometimes I do, would do this with talking so it sounded like a playground full of lorries <laughs> or I would do it like you know I would um, overdub myself singing so I, I sort of emulated what I heard Kenny doing uh-huh. um, <clears throat> so when we met him um, I was very shy and didn't ask him any of those questions but over the years we got to know him and we would follow him on tour uh-huh. because my groupies yeah we were total groupies and um, eventually he had me sing on his um, album because there was a children's choir um, that they called the Colors of Love Choir because <laughs> I guess this was b- before the time of political correctness <laughs> and it was really a multicultural choir Okay, and um, we sang um, sort of a gospel sounding track on his song Conviction of the Heart this was on the album Leap of Faith. And then we sang uh, um, a song called If You Believe on his album. We did the chorus. And he auditioned several of us to sing on his album. And he selected me as one of them to uh, sing um, scat solos on one of his, his oh, on the If You Believe song at the end. So if you listen really carefully as the song fades out, you can hear me going, Believe, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Let's listen now. Kenny Loggins' 1991 song, If You Believe. It features a short solo right at the end by tonight's guest, mezzo-soprano Laurie Rubin, (laughs) who was an aspiring singer living near Los Angeles at the time. You're listening to Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman. Laurie is with me in the studio tonight to talk about her life, her voice, and what it's like to sing professionally when you're blind. To find out more about our series and download our free podcasts, please visit voicebox-media.org. And you can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Laurie, there's this lovely story that you tell in your book related to uh, a Kenny Loggins concert and discovering afterwards, a few weeks afterwards, that you have perfect pitch, mm. um, which is, for those of us that don't know out there, it's, it's, it's the ability to recognise and name musical notes precisely just by listening to them. And only a very small percentage of the world's population has this talent. Around one in 10,000 people have perfect pitch. Is it really? That's yeah. <laughs> and, and, and actually, out of that number, a lot of people don't even ever know that they have it. <laughs> So right. can you share your story, Laurie, about discovering your own perfect pitch ability with us? Right. Well, it, there was one time Kenny sang, we were, uh, it was kind of well into the, our relationship with him, you know, as a family. And we were at this concert and I had become a little bit more bold than that moment of being dumbfounded in the beginning. And he sang a song called Meet Me Halfway. And I noticed that he had sung it in E flat, which on the album was an E 
natural. So I said afterwards, not thinking it was a big deal, I said, so Kenny, why did you sing the song in E flat this time? And he said, shh, shh, don't tell anyone. In a lifetime, so he had told me, wow, you have perfect pitch. He said, you better be careful with that. (laughs) And his keyboard player, Steve Wood, who we became very good friends with also, um, confirmed that later on, too, because he would play notes for me and I would get them right every time. And he said, yeah, you definitely have perfect pitch. Does having perfect pitch help you? It's it's a it's a blessing and a curse sometimes because mm-hmm. um, I remember when I had to do my transposition expo- uh, exercises in theory mm-hmm. it was always very difficult because I'd be hearing A in my head going oh wait that's that's not A you know that's um, and whenever I had to transpose things for the clarinet or the saxophone it was it was always a little bit more difficult because I was always hearing the the, the natural concert C in my head so I was like okay no that I have to think of C as B flat now you know um, so um, but in, the blessing is that. Um, for new music, when I do new music, um, a lot of times you'll have to start singing all of a sudden mm-hmm. um, and you won't be able to pull a pitch out of something recognizable. Uh-huh. And so I go, okay, B flat. Okay. <laughs> you have it right there. In yeah, your head. exactly. So it helps in that case for sure. So you've had this extremely impressive formal musical education, studied with all these amazing people, and you're educated at Oberlin and, and, and wonderful, you know, had these wonderful pedagogical experience in many ways. Um, but before you even got to all of that, there was Phantom of the Opera for mm. you, which was another enormous influence on your development as a, as a singer. What drew you as a girl to this work in particular, and how did it help you to decide that you wanted to develop your voice? I think what drew me to it was the, well, first of all... Um, the enormity of the of the sound when you first hear the overture and there's that organ and you know because they they start out at this auction house and then you, there's the flashback and he says with a little illumination gentlemen and then the first thing you hear is this deafening organ chord uh-huh. uh, and, and and then the theme song of phantom of the opera which you know starts out the overture and it just ah uh, i just remember it vibrating in my chest and then all of a sudden i was always very much into fantasy and um uh, magic and um, also into things from different centuries. I used to love Jane Austen. I used to love um, all kinds of books from different centuries and, and um, that possessed different kinds of magic. And so being able to see that come alive on stage mm-hmm. um, and then hearing Andrew Lloyd Webber create music that emulated music from the 19th century, um, it just it drew, drew me into this world in such a big way. Um, and I think what, the other thing about it was that I didn't even think of this as a musical theater piece. I thought of it as opera. Uh-huh. Um, and so when I went to my voice teacher after, and, and, and to, I think also what drew me to it was the story of this disfigured man who had this incredible musical talent who was so isolated and um, this woman who he, he a- eventually alienated and he alienated all of society from him. But I just thought that it was such a beautiful thing about this really, uh, m- this beautiful man, but who was really unfortunately covered with this distorted exterior. I thought I could sort of relate to that of how people thought of people with disabilities. So I mm-hmm. think that was a big part of it too. But when I went to my voice teacher and I wanted to, I told her, I was like, I want to understudy Christine. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, you're already a ruthless opera singer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she was a Juilliard alum in uh-huh. opera. And she uh-huh. wanted me to start learning opera because once she discovered that I could sing things like Phantom and Think of Me and all this kind of stuff, She then started to um, have me sing opera and classical. Incognito, incognito. 
This is Voice Box, and I'm Chloe Veltman. I'm in the studio with Laurie Rubin, a mezzo-soprano who's been blind from birth. We just heard Sarah Brightman from the original cast recording of Phantom of the Opera with the aria Think of Me. Laurie, most female classically trained singers start off their careers singing soprano repertoire. How did you figure out that you were a, a mezzo-soprano? Oh, um, you know, and it's still one of those things that people are like, are you really a mezzo? Um, and I think what it was for me was that... Um, when I was I was singing things like "Je veux vivre" and all these like the Juliet's, which I guess Juliet's waltz and all the, all the other um, "Bati Bati," those were things I I knew that I could do because of the coloratura. But then I remember there was one summer I went to Tanglewood, the BUTI Boston University Tanglewood Institute, and the lady uh, who was the, the pretty much the director of the program at the time said, "You know, I hate to tell you this, Lori, but I think you're a mezzo." and she said that like it was a negative thing. <laughs> and I was so excited. I was like, oh, I am? Because I loved, um, I really loved all the pants roles. Uh-huh. I just loved that gender bending aspect. And I had just seen Marriage of Figaro. And I just thought Carabino was the sexiest thing ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so I was excited to be a mezzo. And I also thought the richness in the lower register um, was something that was so much fun to play with. And, and um, But then, you know, I have one of these voices like, well, if I could say Cecilia Bartoli or Frederica von Stada, which sits really high. Mm-hmm. So it, it confuses people. And it confuses me sometimes because I can end up singing things like Shepherd on the Rock, which is for soprano and clarinet and piano. And I end up singing um, uh, Knoxville Summer of 1915, the Barber piece, which is for definitely for soprano and orchestra. But it sits fine in my voice. And I think it's one of those things that some people just are right in between two, two fachs. You can either be between you know, mezzo and soprano, or sometimes your lyric coloratura, you're not exactly, you know, what, what the fox are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But I, I found this a joy, even though um, it has confused and perplexed people when they're trying to hire me or, or put me into a, into a box. Mm-hmm. It's great because I've had composers who have written for me who said, oh, you can do that and you can do this. And I'm not going to write like how I normally write for a mezzo. And so they end up writing what's more comfortable for my voice. And it's nice to have that flexibility. So, yeah, that's sort of my, my schizophrenic journey through mezzo and soprano. Well, it, you know, it's wonderful to have such a, uh, an enviably large range and to be able to produce so many different colours. Mm-hmm. I know you're an avid, avid reader and writer and, and that words play a huge part in your life. Mm. I know one thing I really like about the book, that it, the memoir, is how you describe various people's voices, like your, your ski instructor and the rabbi who presided over your bat mitzvah and your singing Aww. teacher. I'd be curious to hear how, how would you describe your own voice oh my own singing voice mm-hmm. um you know it's so hard to say because I hear it all the time I I think to me it sounds a little bit creamy like uh creme brulee-ish I guess <laughs> uh some people have told me they feel like it sounds like wine you know burgundy but I think to me I, I hear a little bit of chocolate in it you know, because that's very mezzo-y. But for example, Cecilia Bartoli, I think of as having a very dark chocolate sound. Mm-hmm. And I think of myself as having a more milk chocolate sound. So it's not quite as, as dark and it's a little higher. 
And and sometimes I think it sounds like Alfredo sauce. I don't know why, but <laughs> it's you know, like you know, it's creamy, but it's uh-huh. I don't know. It's not as long as it's not too heavy Alfredo sauce. tuned into Voicebox and I'm Chloe Veltman. Please visit voicebox-media.org to find out more about our series. And our free weekly podcasts are always available on iTunes and on the Voicebox website. My guest is mezzo-soprano Laurie Rubin. Laurie's recently published memoir, Do You Dream in Colour, explores her life as a professional singer who's been blind from birth. We just heard Laurie performing the art song Les Berceux, that's cradles in French, by the 19th century French composer Gabriel Fauré. Laurie, how do you go about learning a repertoire? Do you do you do it all by ear or do you have braille sheet music or other technologies that you use? I do everything pretty much by ear because by the time I had gotten to learn braille music, I found it to be counterintuitive um, because you, braille, braille is made up of six dots mm-hmm. and there's only so many combinations. So you have to sort of forget the literary letters when you're uh, working on the braille music notes. For example, the eighth note C mm. is actually the Braille literary letter D. That's so I've confusing. always yeah, I found it so. But there are some blind people who don't think of it that way at all. But I've I've never learned Braille music. Um, uh, maybe I didn't learn it young enough or what. But I do pretty much everything by ear. Um, and also, I was very lucky to have great teachers in high school teach me music theory, uh, thinking of the showing me how to think of the staff visually in my head. Yeah. So when people do say like eighth note tied to a quarter or quarter tied to an eighth or eighth tied to a sixteenth or what whatnot, I do understand what they're talking about because people have actually physically drawn a staff for me and showed me what it looks like. Uh huh. And I find that more intuitive than actually reading braille music. Uh huh. So you you how do they draw? They drew it on your skin, or how do you how did they? Um, yeah, actually, I think somebody actually drew it like a graph on a piece of paper for me, and and it was raised. They oh, used to, like I a see. cookie cutter device, but mainly it's just hearing it in my thinking about it in my head really helps. Uh, okay. Um, and just learning music by ear. Okay. How does performing in a recital compare to the work you've done with orchestras and conductors? I mean, people like John Williams, for example. Oh, well, I, I love recital work, but I absolutely love orchestral work too. And what I love is that you're this singer, that you're steeped in this landscape, this lush landscape of sound. It's almost like how I used to feel when I was at Tanglewood and we were lying in the grass and the grass was so thick and wonderful. And when you're singing with an orchestra, you feel like instead of being on ground, like a piano is more grounding, mm-hmm. you feel like you're sort of uh, boosted up in this fluffy <laughs> grass <laughs> um, with all these wonderful textures and different instruments. And I love that. It just feels like being in nature almost. Um, and again, it's that same feeling of when I was in, um, watching Phantom and the organ f- filled my chest. Whenever you hear the timpani or the mm-hmm. organ, it's just so neat to be on stage for that. And, I, you know, working with a conductor is really, I haven't found it to be too hard because conductors are very 
they'll they'll never admit to it, but they're very uh, vocal when mm-hmm. they conduct. Mm-hmm. So they'll go, <gasps> or you know, they 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 kind of grunt like Glenn Gould a little bit. So uh-huh. You, uh-huh. you can't hear it over an orchestra, but when you're standing next to them, you hear it. And uh-huh. also, their emotion is so palpable; you can feel it. Uh-huh. You can feel it in the way their arms are moving next to you. You can he- just just really feel it in their vibe, and. So it's a real, again, give and take. And so with John Williams, I never for a moment felt like we weren't following each other. And it's mo- much the same you would feel with a, a piano mm-hmm. because you, the pianist and you are, are together and, and working together with a vibe, you know, because if you're always listening for the piano or the orchestra, you'll be too late. But if you're working with their, their energy, then, you know, you'll be right on task. Uh, the only difference is when I'm doing opera because... Mm. The orchestra and the conductor are so far away. Yeah. So that becomes a little more challenging. But it's, you know, I think it's that way for a sighted person, too, because you have to cheat out and you have to be looking at your props on stage. So I think I'm really in the same boat as a sighted person when it comes to opera. But, it, you know, I think all of us singers end up either ahead or behind at some point, And we have to really reevaluate in our bodies how we're feeling the music. So you've performed in a bunch of operas. Uh, can you mm. tell us about some mm. of your the most powerful experiences in that realm? Sure. Yeah. Well, one of them was uh, the La Voix Humaine, which is the human voice. It's by um, Francis Poulenc. And it's um, in a, a wonderful, very real feeling opera about a girl, a woman who's living in Paris in her apartment uh, and hasn't eaten for two days and, and is waiting for her lover to call. Mm. Um, and it's the last time she'll speak to him before she just finds out he marries somebody else the next day. Oh, the rat. Oh, but it's just so full of, of, of longing and, and desperation. And I think what made it the most incredible experience for me is that it is my worst fear, I think. I think we all fear abandonment and we all fear being alone and dying alone. And this woman felt like she could never be on her own. She mm-hmm. had to have this man in order to be, uh, an, uh, have the identity that she needed. And it was just, it's just really, she goes from, tries to be happy and tries to show him that she's okay, but then she gets sad and suicidal and, hmm. uh so that was really powerful. And also, I think what made it powerful is being the only person in the opera because the only other character in the opera is the telephone. Um, and so I have to interpret what's going on uh, on the other end through my face and through my voice. And mm. that was really, really amazing. And some of, one of the other powerful experiences was doing Cenerentola, which I did my senior year of college. And I did it with, or it was the first time I'd sung opera with an orchestra. But I think the most powerful part about it was that it's the Cinderella story. And and there's this one part where instead of having a stepmother, she has a stepfather that beats her up. Hmm. And the sisters are ganging up on her. And I remember what it was like in middle school to be bullied and ganged up upon. And then the next scene She's she's meets this Alidoro who is like her fairy godfather and he he transforms her into this beautiful princess like person that was worthy of the prince, and I remember doing that scene and to this day I, I just never forget bursting into tears, because it was just like, you know I felt like it was me all of a sudden it wasn't just to Cinderella it was it was it was my story you know and I had felt going into college finally celebrated as a person and not being bullied anymore and so. It was just, it was wonderful to create that character and to find me in that character. Do you want to be doing more opera work? And, and how easy is it to get hired for operas? Because I, I imagine there are some directors who would be reluctant to hire somebody when they sort of think, oh, that person might not be able to get around the stage so easily yeah. and they can't see me. How yeah. do you cope with all that? Well, you know, that's interesting. I think there are quite a few short-sighted directors for sure, but I think that they're becoming a little more obsolete mm-hmm. because the opera world is so forced to change now because the audience is, is changing. Yeah, And you can't use the same 
uh, old production that's dusty of, of Traviata. You have to think of a, a new way to make it real for audiences. And so I'm hoping that there will be more and more directors who, who have an edge and who maybe will consider uh, using me because they won't feel like Violetta has to be a certain way jumping on the stage and you mm-hmm. know over these crazy elaborate set pieces. And um, recently I had a call from from a symphony, a local symphony here, and um, well, through my manager, and, and apparently they're interested in having me do a role blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they were actually interested in having me play the role anyway, but then when they found out I was blind, then they were very intrigued. Mm-hmm. So I think disability and all, it's becoming cool. <laughs> and um, so I think there will be more and more directors willing to take chances. And I've met a few of them. Most of them are in their 30s or under. And because I think a lot of times people still think, you know, when of the old days with the historical anachronism of blindness, and they have a hard time picturing a sexual object, which a lot of the times these these women are in operas as somebody with a disability. Mm. Um, and, and in fact, I had an argument with a director about that once. I said, you know, Mimi could be blind or, or Dora Bella could be blind. And he's like, oh, no, no way. And I was like, huh. no, yes way. Of course. Why not? You know? And uh, and then I made it made me realize how people think of blind people and people with disabilities in general as these asexual beings. Hmm. And I'm glad that, you know, this is changing and that and now people are more intrigued by people who are marginalized. It's really cool. So I'd love to play now a couple of your operatic performances, Laurie. Let's hear first uh, you singing Non Piu Mesta from Rossini's La Cenerentola. And that'll be followed up by an aria from La Voix Humaine by Francis Poulenc with a libretto by Jean Cocteau. Non Piu Mesta from Rossini's La Cenerentola, followed by La Voix Humaine by Francis Poulenc and Jean Cocteau. The vocalist we heard was tonight's guest, Laurie Rubin. I'm Chloe Veltman and I'm chatting with Laurie about her voice and life as a professional singer who's been blind from birth. Please visit voicebox-media.org for more information about our series. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook. And our free weekly podcasts are also available on the Voicebox website and iTunes. 
Laurie, some of the experiences that you've most enjoyed to date, it seems, have been with uh, with your collaborations that you've done with contemporary composers. Mm. What do you find particularly satisfying about these partnerships? Oh, well, I think what's really neat is that, you know, we spend so much time trying to figure out what the composer wanted. And even from early music and, you know, stylistically what, what they wanted. And it's so nice to actually be in a room with a composer and they, and, they, and they can tell you exactly. And you can make a sound and they can say, yeah, that's what I want. Or no, it's more like this, you know. It's very gratifying knowing that what you're doing is on the money. <laughs> and it's also neat to show a composer something that you thought of and, the, and, and to help them invent an interpretation too. It, it's really wonderful that way. And um, I've also found that new music is very flexible in terms of uh, you can be a very eccentric interpreter. Mm-hmm. Um, and for example, I did a piece which was supposed to be about the aftermath of 9-11, mm-hmm. about the leaflets that were dropped on uh, Afghanistan. And there were some parts where there was, um, it was called psyops, and it was just things that shell-shocked uh, war vets would be saying. It was just, so you could do so many things with it in, in a performance art sort of way. Um, which wasn't sort of relegated to the boundaries of, of maybe romantic music. So I, I love that. And um, there was a piece of music that I did. It was actually an opera. And it was uh, the main character was a girl that had had a psychotic break. And so she had a hard time deciphering reality from <laughs> from mm. fantasy. And there were microtones. So it's mm. between a half step. Uh, so it would almost sound like a sharp sharp F sharp uh-huh, <laughs> or something uh-huh. like that. Um, and it's really adds a different color to the music and a sort of disturbing color. And um, there was one time when I did that piece and I had to convulse on stage. Mm-hmm. And that was really cool because I could imagine what it was like to finally just lose it um, in a way that you don't always get to do. Even even in something like Lucia, you know, they say uh-huh. she goes mad, but she does it in a very perfect coloratura kind of a way. Uh-huh. But, you know, when you're on stage doing new music, a lot of times you can go bananas and, and have a Meryl Streep moment, you know? It's really fun. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I know that Dawn Upshaw has been a key figure in your development as an interpreter of new work in particular, um, and she's no stranger to doing all kinds of amazing and surreal things on stage. How did you come to work with Dawn Upshaw and what did she teach you? Um, I did a program called Songfest, which is at, um, used to be at Pepperdine. Now it's at the Colburn School in L.A. But um, they have inc- incredible people there, including Graham Johnson, who I've worked with. And um, John Harbison was one of them. And I had done a few of his songs in a master class for him. And um, a few weeks later, after the program had ended, he recommended that I audition for his workshop at Carnegie Hall, with him and Don Upshaw. Mm-hmm. And the premise of the workshop was they were going to take four composers and four singers, and each composer would be matched up with one of the singers, and they had to write a piece for, for us. And um, so I became very um, close with uh, of all the composers, actually. But one of them, the one that was supposed to write the piece for me, actually his piece was very, of all the pieces, was the most um, eccentric. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was very the more uh, um, performance art-ish. And so uh, there were... Parts where he would have, have me scream on a high G or inhale while singing. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember going into that workshop saying to Don uh, Upshaw, I said, you know, I, I don't really feel comfortable screaming on a high G. And she said, oh, when he says scream, he just means sing with angst, you know. <laughs> and she would give me all these sort of ideas of th- how to do it healthfully. Or when you inhale while singing, you still support. You just support while inhaling rather than exhaling. Hmm. So it, she just taught me all these great tricks. And um, 
So she, I just said to her, God, I wish I could put you in my pocket and take you everywhere with me. <laughs> but she was just great. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And you've also had this wonderful relationship with Frederica von Stade, um, to mm. different kinds of things, I think, that you got from her. Can you tell us a little bit about that mentorship? That was amazing. Yeah. Well, the thing was, well, as they call her, Flicka, mm-hmm. was that um, I had met her at a master class um, that my voice teachers organization had put on. And... She was so nice, and a couple of years later, my mother went to see something at the Met. She she'd became uh, become an opera fan too. Now that she had had this daughter in in opera, and so she got very into opera. So she went to the Met when I was in college. I wasn't there with her, but she gave um, Flicka a CD of mine. And within a few months, uh, I got a call from Flicka, and she said, "You know, uh, Lori, would you sing? Would you would you be willing to sing with me? I know you're busy. You know, with your <laughs> I'm like what." <laughs> I mean, she was asking me like as if she was asking me to be on her committee for some Girl Scout thing. You know what I mean? It was yeah. just, I was like, of course I'll sing with you. Oh my gosh! Uh-huh. So I, she had us stay with her, and I and I learned so much just spending two days with her. Um, not only was did I learn that when you sing with somebody better than you, that you become a better singer, mm-hmm. because your voice starts to take on the better qualities of that person, and that's probably the best way to learn how to sing well. But I also learned that. Uh, to be a very gracious and wonderful community-involved person was exactly what I wanted to emulate in, in, in how she was because we she took us to her local ice cream parlor and every person in there uh, knew her mm-hmm. uh, and they knew her through their kids or the, or the owner of the ice cream shop knew her. It was just like just, she was just treated like so like part of the the community and, and she was important but she wasn't necessarily important just because she's a singer she was important because she was so giving mm-hmm. and I noticed that she would speak to her the cleaning lady that came to her house in Spanish and everything was she just met everybody where they could be met in terms of of communication and and um, love and it was just something that I, I, I felt like that was more important anyway any day than singing it was is to be a good person because once you're a good person then you can become a really good artist and and learn to be compassionate and 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 internalize those characters and and so i think that's what i learned most from her was about her humanity and that's what i wanted to take home with me as an artist well well wonderful words uh i think it'd be great now to hear from uh dawn upshaw and uh, frederica von stada so we're going to hear a track by dawn upshaw singing john harbison's somewhere a seed and then uh frederica von stada performing bayero by joseph cantalub and for full playlist information visit voicebox-media.org Thank you. 
I'm Chloe Veltman. You're listening to Voicebox. Find us online at voicebox-media.org. We just heard tracks by two of this country's greatest living female classical vocalists, Frederica von Stade and Dawn Upshaw, who both happen to be mentors of tonight's guest, mezzo-soprano Laurie Rubin. First, we heard Dawn Upshaw singing John Harbison's Somewhere a Seed, and that was followed by Frederica von Stade performing Bayero by Joseph Cantalube. For full playlist information, visit voicebox-media.org. Laurie, um, how often is it that you find yourself being compared to other blind singers like Andrea Bocelli, for example, who's classically trained like Mm. you? Even just as, 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 as recently as last night. Oh, really? <laughs> Some a lady, a, a composer, sent me her music and she said, I want you to sing this with either Josh Groban or Andrea Bocelli. <laughs> okay. But, you know, sometimes it's hard to know if they're comparing me to people because of the, the style of music or because, uh-huh. like, because I know there's some people don't, don't even know that uh, Andrea Bocelli is blind. Mm-hmm. But I remember um, growing up, a lot of people comparing me to... Stevie Wonder, which I thought was so bizarre because, I mean, I love Stevie Wonder. I love his voice. And man, I admire what he can do with it. Um, but I don't think of myself anything like him because, first of all, he's a mean pianist and he's a he plays all sorts of instruments really well. And I can't do that. Well, you're a pianist. <laughs> well, sort of. I mean, sort of. I mean, Jenny, my partner, puts me to shame, so I don't really even touch the piano anymore. Okay. But yeah, I used to play piano. Uh-huh. But, you know, I, I have my strengths and, and weaknesses are so different than any of the other blind singers I happen to know, like Ronnie Millsap and Ray Charles and on, even Andrea Bocelli, because even though we're closer, uh, we're probably the warmest, you know, in terms of the connections between artists. He's still a little bit more, what's the word? I guess popish or something. Not that I wouldn't venture into doing pop music. And in fact, I am doing more and more in that realm and, and trying to combine, combine folk and jazz influences into my, my music as we as I try to get more on the creative side. But I still, I wouldn't say that his exact kind of music is what my music is, but he is a little bit more and closer, closely related to me. And I do admire his singing a lot. I always say that he sounds like Sting in the sort of low part of his range and like mm-hmm. Pavarotti in the higher part of his range. Mm-hmm. And I, I never mind being compared to them, but I, I, I sometimes wonder if people are mistakenly comparing people just because they romanticize blindness as this big mystery. Mm-hmm. And I don't know any two people alike who are blind, much less you know, two artists, you know, so, um, but I, I definitely have had people say to me, oh, you know, you got to sing with Stevie Wonder or, or you, you and Andrea Bocelli, yeah, you guys should do a concert. And I'm, I'm totally willing to do it because man, if um, I could jump on the uh, coattails of these very famous people, I would be thrilled, of course, and, you know, get to sing with these great artists. But um, in terms of there being a marriage of I, I would say similarity. I, I, I don't I don't think so. <laughs> well, let's take a break from the conversation and uh, listen to the very different voices and styles of a few singers yeah. and one vocal ensemble who don't have the use of their sight. In order, we'll hear from Andrea Bocelli, Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, and at the end of the set, from the Petko Steinoff Academy from Sofia, Bulgaria, which is a group of singers whose members are mostly blind. For full playlist information, please visit the Voicebox website. Hace mucho tiempo, nunca olvidaré el momento en que yo te conocí. Mírame, pues no hay nada más profundo ni 
más grande en este mundo que el cariño que te di. Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. Tonight's guest is Laurie Rubin, a mezzo-soprano who's been blind from birth. Laurie has a new memoir out, Do You Dream in Colour? And we're chatting about her experiences and what it's like to sing without sight. For full playlist information relating to the set we just heard, please visit voicebox-media.org. But here's a quick overview. In order, we heard from Andrea Bocelli, Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles and the Petko Steinov Academy from Sofia, Bulgaria, which is a group of singers whose members are mostly blind. Laurie, we're getting towards the end of our hour together and I'd like to turn our attention before we go to chatting about the work you're doing with your partner on a new album which, like the song cycle Do You Dream in Colour, features lyrics by you and music by your partner Jennifer Tyra. What are the songs in your new album about? Well, the title track is an experience that I had in middle school and the reason I wanted to talk about that is because I wanted kids to feel hope. I know that so many kids are bullied um, for a variety of reasons, but I want them to know that the, their future doesn't necessarily mean that that's what their present is going to be like. And so the song talks about how this very important friend in my life actually turned on me when I needed her most. And she changed my identity and in my own head and said that I would live an isolated life and never have romance hmm. and simply because of, of the blindness factor. Hmm. And then you know, at that time, I had all these hopes and dreams of a normal teenager, but then they were sort of blown, you know, they were just, I just at the time felt very, almost like my dreams had disappeared right from under me. And, but then I realized, 
you know, through the help of my family and, and just also being resilient is that you have to believe that you're beautiful inside and that what you have to offer is, is wonderful. And, and you have to uh, grow in your own way and, and build upon what you know you want to be to become the person that you b- believe that you should be. And so therefore, you should never listen to anybody and um, anybody else's picture of you you should only draw your own picture and so the third verse of that song is you know this is all that stuff that happened to me and tried to reinvent me and look I'm this is who I am and I'm proud of who I am and I actually have had romance and I've had all these great things so that's the title track call it's called the girl I am I share the moonlight with my love and I love with my Should knock you down and take your dreams away. Just get right up and stand up tall. And this is what you say. Don't tell me what I deserve. This is how my life should be. Don't try to shape the So tonight's show is drawing to a close. You're listening to Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman. Laurie, I'd like to thank you so much for coming into the studio to chat with me. It's been wonderful hearing your stories and thoughts and listening to your beautiful songs and especially this lovely last song we heard, The Girl I Am, which you co-wrote with your partner, Jennifer Tyra. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. To find out more about tonight's guest, Laurie Rubin, please visit laurie-rubin.com. That's L-A-U-R-I-E hyphen R-U-B-I-N.com. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. Our series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. Our marketing and development director is Greta Bosal. Please support Voicebox. You can make an easy and safe donation by visiting voicebox-media.org or you can mail us a cheque. We're a non-profit project, so all donations made to us are tax deductible. Find out more and send us your questions and comments via our website voicebox-media.org and don't forget you can connect with us on Twitter and Facebook and if you're looking for me on Twitter my handle is Chloe Veltman I'll play us out with a reprise of the beautiful tone poem we heard a part of at the very start of the show here's a little more of Do You Dream in Colour by Laurie Rubin and Bruce Adolph have a songful week Oh, <laughs> 